Welcome back to the Stars and Scale podcast. I'm your host, Jack Brandwood. This is the place where we speak with people who are starting and scaling tech businesses. We'll be talking with founders, investors, and everyone in between. This week, I sit down with Stuart Warrington from Invoke Demos. Our conversation ranges from the value of video games, breaking into new sectors, and how to go about finding an investor. I think there's a perception that as an economy shrinks, then uh, investment becomes more difficult. But that's not actually true because the only way money makes money is if you put it somewhere. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the episode. So Stuart, thanks for coming on. That's all right. Yeah, how was the, how was the journey to Manchester? All right, I was just explaining um, to your colleagues there that I, I bought a big stupid car uh, and it's left-hand drive and parking in a multi-storey car park in the middle of Manchester. It's just obscene when I'm reaching over to get the the um, the ticket out and my knee goes on the horn and I was just like, the horn's going up in the car. I'm grabbing the seat and I'm in an obnoxious car as it is. I'm like, I like the worst person ever. <laughs> so yeah, other than that, it was fine. Good. Well, glad, glad you came. And um, and look, I always like to start these things off with a really kind of deep, but very simple question. Um, who is Stuart Warrington? Oh, big question. Yeah. A... It's just weird that you even have to start it. I was, I say I was, which is unfair. I have been a filmmaker for 20 years and got into it purely by accident. And from getting into it, went from straight up editing to doing camera work, to doing animation. And that gradually grew to me making video games as well. And largely I'm a person who, my wife will describe me as a magpie. Because I'll just see something and go like, I want to make that now. And sometimes that is challenging. So, you know, who is Stuart Warrington? What am I? I'm a guy who makes things. That's it, right? And whatever I want to make, I'll try and make it. It That's what spun out all of my companies and everything that we've done. Is like, here is a desire to make something. And now here is a desire to make money off that thing as well. Mm. So that's who I am. Quite a loquacious person. I am trying my hardest to be less sweary because I'm quite a sweary and animated person as well. Um, but yeah, I'm a, a God. Saying you're a creative is such a weird thing, but that is it. I just make things and then try and work out how I can make that my job. That's who I am. Love that. That's really good. That should be a LinkedIn bio. Well, it was uh, for a bit. It said something like that, and then I went to a LinkedIn course, and they went get rid of that because nobody cares about that. So it's this weird LinkedIn seminar where somebody told me. I thought it was going to be someone telling me how the internet worked, but it wasn't. It was quite useful. They said, all that stuff on your LinkedIn profile, maybe tweak it a little bit. So saying I am someone who makes things is too generic because people are like, what do you make a wall? Like, no. Yeah. So you need to be a bit more focused on it. Okay. Fair enough. Well, look, another uh, awkward way to start a podcast is we, um, our vision is uh, tact is trying to create a world where everyone gets their dream job. Yeah. Um, you weren't always stewards of Invoke. Um, could you please draw yeah. what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, yeah. The version of something that I thought I wanted to be is quite easy to draw because I was I was fairly sure I was going to be 007, right? So I was fairly sure that I was going to be that. But it turns out that that wasn't ever going to be the case. Um, so then I, uh, I'm going to draw it just like, like I'm just drawing emojis. So, so I then... What it to be? I'm gonna do this as a as a bunch of eggs and some sausages in there. My mouths all of a sudden. I want it to be a chef. Nice. Uh, and that was 
quickly sort of vetoed because I was like, it's quite stressful and you, you're a kid. You're like, I'll be a chef. And then you realize you see a chef do their job. And you're like, holy crap, that's like a lot of hard work. And you cry all the time. So then uh, I wanted to be, this is going to be the worst thing I'm going to draw ever, right? And then I wanted to be a vet for a while. And I was like, God, you need to know a lot of maths. <laughs> Zero plus one equals, oh, this might be a dog, but let's just pretend it's any generic four-legged animal, but you need a lot of maths. And I was like, I was just so bad at maths. And he said, look, if you want to be a vet, you have to, you have to you know, at least get an A in maths. A level I was like, well, that's not going to happen. I'm horrendously dyslexic, right? So anything to do with school, it was like any pathway you went down, it was like, you're going to need to be more academic to do that. And that was a really challenging because basically when you grow up in the like the age I was, so I was, I'm 40, so I was born in 83. And when you got told you were dyslexic, um, you had to be statemented. And it meant that you were restricted massively in what you couldn't come do at school. So my mum, to her credit, didn't have me statemented, but knew I was dyslexic. But any career path that you wanted was like, you have to be better at math. You have to be better at English. And I was like, well, those are the things I literally can't do. Uh, it wasn't until after school that I realized that the only thing that actually gave me any level of satisfaction and people can tell me that I needed to be more academic to do it was, I'll just do that and do a big circle. And then it was filmmaking and that was it. Because filmmaking, you could just pick up a camera and shoot and edit it and no one could tell you what to do. Whereas everything else I tried to do, people said, you can't do that because you're not good enough at maths. You can't spell, you can't write, you you, know, you struggle to read. So after all of that, I was like, the only thing that gave me the satisfaction was filmmaking. Wow. This is the most eclectic the drawing has. <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah. Anyone? Thank you. Yeah. It's meant to be a dog. I don't know why he's squinting. I don't know why it's meant to be like... Like I said, I I'm I'm possibly need Photoshop more than uh, I let on to draw stuff. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, my my colleague, my co-founder, uh, Tom, he he's dyslexic, um, different age, obviously. So it must have been, and he said it was tough when he was in school. So I can't, I can't imagine what it was like by then. I've got an older brother who's two years older than me, right? That in itself, for anybody who's a younger sibling, is quite a difficult thing because everything you're doing, which is like quite major, they did it already two years before and they're currently doing the next thing. And that was stuff that I held on to for far too long. Like you're doing your options and you're struggling with them and your older brother who's doing his GCSEs, well, all the attention is going to be on the GCSEs because they've already done their options. And then you're doing your GCSEs and they're doing their A-levels. But, you know, GCSEs already been done. So you always feel, being dyslexic makes you feel sort of out of place in school anyway because they'll go like, you can't read as well as everybody else, or you can't write as well as everybody else. And in my era, they would just put you in a class with other people who were the same as you, but then other people who had behavioral problems as well. So if you needed more attention, you didn't get any more attention because there's a person sat over there screaming and shouting who you know, needs a different level of support. So it was no one really understands how to work with someone who's dyslexic in the academic system because it's not built for someone to think differently it's built to everyone to think in these straight lines so you have all these things that compounding that compound you and then you realize that actually you know school isn't the be all and end all of everything and when you get out of it and you get this ability to craft your own path that's what really helped me was i will not be negative about the school system because it's you know it's not perfect but nothing is and it doesn't understand that you can't have a go at somebody for not understanding something 
when you get out of that situation, if you're like me or like your um, business partner, if you get when you get out of the situation, you suddenly realise you can find a path that you actually fit into quite well. Mm. It doesn't have to be school. I'm sorry, I'll go off this soapbox as well at some point. But um, yeah, that was the, that was largely the thing for me. It was like getting out and getting a camera in my hand meant that, like I said, that was a language that you could understand. Whereas English and maths and science and all stuff is just not a language you could really understand. And if you think of things as languages that you can understand, it sort of starts to make a little bit more sense. No, basically, yeah, get it, get it. Um, so I, how did you get to from that to where you are now? Started get, I got into making films and then um, went to uni, got kicked out of Salford University, which is difficult to get kicked out of. Like, you know, getting kicked out of certain universities is probably easier. Getting kicked out of Salford is quite hard because it, at the time I went there, and this is going to sound negative, it felt like they would let anybody in. And then to get asked to leave was, you know, um, was quite a challenge. But it just, what happened really quickly was this transition from film to digital was happening and the university wasn't keeping up. So I was just getting more and more frustrated with it. Managed to get one of my lecturers had a um, she had a company called Riprot, a woman called Alison Surti. She's still in Manchester now. So she said, You can know how to edit, don't you? And she confused me for somebody else. And I just went, Yeah. And she gave me a laptop and there was a job and she said, get on editing that. So you gotta take these opportunities sometimes, right? Yeah. Did that, started editing for her for quite a while, then got with a woman who got uh, became pregnant. And it really made me stop being such a sort of a dosser and treating it as like a joke. And was like, I was 23 and we found out she was pregnant when she was five months pregnant. So it was like, you need to focus now uh, because you've, you're more than the sum of your parts, right? So you've got this other person to look after. So I really focused then on like, I need to turn this into a career rather than something I was just doing by chance. And then once you do that and you commit to it, then it went from having this responsibility to make sure that I earned money every month to pay for the family and then went off in a direction of I need to do this full-time rather than doing it freelance, got a full-time job and it went from there and I got a bunch of full-time jobs doing progressively more and more sort of important in inverted commas like um, editing jobs. So that's the, the start of the journey. It was actually quite a high level view really, I think, of your history and you were motivated to make this a full career initially because he had a family kind of say, yeah yeah as someone who possibly needed to be pushed but found it impossible to be pushed in any direction needed something that, like so external but so important to push you which was having a having a child having a daughter it was like you need to make some money because you've got to you know pay the bills feed everybody you've got to go out and make a career of it and that gives you focus which is sometimes one of the most difficult things to have especially when you're 23 are you focused on having fun and that's fine but to uh, be focused on actually now we need to go out and make a proper thing. If you're going to do it, you know, my old man always used to say, you've got shit, I'll get off the pot, right? So it's time to crack on. And that's when, from basically 23 to 30, I worked for other people. I was like, I need to make a career, I need to learn as much as I possibly can about this. And then I had this goal, which was I wanted to own my own company before I was 30. Like these weird arbitrary things that you just put on yourself, especially when you're not even 30 yet. You're like, I need this thing. It's like, well, why? We realized it was because I was really struggling to take instruction from anybody else because you just see people and you're like, you don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. It's like, well, go and prove that you know what you're doing. So that's how I ended up at 30, starting Superla, which is the video arm of the business that we've got at the moment. And the business ran out Invoke demos. Invoke spun out of... Um, Span out of Superla because the way it works, Superla started about 11 years ago 
and it was film and animation. That's what we did because that's all I knew. But during the the like the path of doing Superla, we started to get asked quite a lot for for games. We make videos for businesses. We were for like Santander and O2 and people like that, right? And then they were asking, "Can you do any gamification?" And same sort of thing. I just said, "Yeah, we can." I know the first thing about it. You just go and find people you can bring into the business to help. Calculated that risk of going like, "We will not mess this up if we just put the right people in place." Always wanted to make a video game, so went down that path. Did a couple of small video games for companies, and then showed that to a, an agency boss who worked with a. This is really like sounds really like broken as a journey. I'd be better if I draw it out. Made a bunch of video games, showed that to an agency boss who had a customer called Thermo Fisher Scientific, who was a big biotech company, right? Based Cheshire, right? They're everywhere, right? They're basically, people go like, they're down the road. It's like, well, let every down. The end of every road, right? They're the biggest biotech company in the world. And they had a problem that they said, we struggle to ship products. We don't struggle to, but it's expensive shipping products. So when we do a demo to somebody of these life sciences and biotech systems, the sort of things that go in labs, right? That, the one that we can all visualize is a PCR machine, right? Because we all got tested for COVID at some point and went on a PCR machine. They cost a lot of money to ship to do a demo. They said, we are under, we're doing this to underqualified leads. So we want to put something in the way before we ship a product. And I said, you need to make a video game. And like, we don't want to make a video game. I said, you need to make a light, uh, you need to make a, a virtual demo tool. No, like, oh, we want that. I was like, it's the same thing call it what you want but i'm going to do exactly that i'm going to make you a video game and i'm going to call it a virtual demo platform and then we made it pre-covid then covid hit and it became the most like important tool in their arsenal a way to show products to customers anywhere around the world and it was all by chance by a chance meeting where somebody explained a problem and i saw an opportunity and went i can build that so we went and built it whoa so yeah you just like calculated risk right that was all it was. Seeing a chance of going like, there is a solution that I can build that will mean that you can show products to people without ever having to ship anything. And it's, a, it's called a video game. And these businesses don't want to make video games. So it's like, if you call it something else, I'll take it. That was, yeah, so that was what it was all spun out of. Have you, have you spoken to that person after the facts and said, by the way, you know this is just a video game, right? Oh, yeah. It's come up a few times. Yeah. Um, it's come, and it comes up all the time, actually, when you're talking to people because the the... The platform's changed and grown. It's been going for four years now. So Invoke is a platform that the virtual demo tool is grown and changed a lot, but it is still based on the same fundamentals that it it is expensive to ship things. And this this virtual demo experience means you don't have to ship things as much. When I speak to the people who originally spoke to about it, um, they are like, oh, so it was it is just a video game. Because now four years ago people didn't know about the Unreal Engine the same way they do now. But now when people see like they watch Star Wars and all the stuff around it. They know video games are sort of clawing their way into every single industry, so they're a bit more aware of it. Yeah. Well, four or five years ago, nobody, nobody had a clue. What's a video game that's like? It's, it's super gruesome. But it's like with aliens, like every game. It's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> the barrier to entry with these things are that people, if you show somebody a, one of our demos, for example, some of our demos don't look as real as they could look. But the reason we don't go full photo real like the Unreal Engine does is because accessibility is more important. So if I make your demo look photo real and um, it looks incredible and it's nice and shiny and it's lit really nicely, 
the person you're selling to who's in a lab who's in a basement with crappy internet won't be able to see it so we have to like like balance our desire to make the best looking like unreal photo real engine type thing to who are you actually going to go and show you know most people looking on their phone you can't download that stuff on your phone so you balance this stuff out all the time okay that makes sense yeah so the, the, the super realistic stuff is amazing but the super realistic stuff takes super high-end tech to run it so we have to balance that quite a bit and when you say balance what, what how do you mean so games taught us years ago about um how this is so nerdy but um like how 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 efficient can you be to get the thing to look its best right in a really basic way a pc just sort of lets information come in one way and lets it go out another way but those things are a series of roads right? if you want really like super realistic high-end stuff you have to have a bigger motorway going into your processor to let the things go out the other side most people at work don't have that they don't have super gaming rigs they're not doing twitch streaming they've got a crappy 10 year old thinkpad that works given them that's been in a warehouse for years right that hasn't got the same motorway system laying all the information in right so we have to make it efficient so that the information comes in gradually so they get the same experience but it's managed how we do that and that's what my company does like we can talk about the the platform and what it does for people but ultimately it's like we make sure it goes into people's hands anywhere and that's what games proper game development teaches you it's like it's like memory management right it's how much power can you realistically push for your audience because you can push all the power in the world but if nobody's going to be able to see it what's the point that's why game dev teaches you good efficient ways of using a pc rather than just throwing everything out did that make any sense it does no it does <clears throat> and that's why i know you that was a good explanation because i don't know anything about that but it does make sense yeah so invoke been going for four years four years yeah uh recently secured investment yes so about four months ago now we took on uh, a chunk of investment from the mercia group which run the northern powerhouse investment fund cool so we took that money on to accelerate the business right why now um that is a good question why now because it come up quite a few times so we started that journey 12 months before we got the money why now is actually why a year ago because investment is brutal getting money off people turns out getting money off people is quite difficult and it is like we could see that for it to grow and for it to become what it is becoming realistically couldn't strangle superlative cash flow anymore because superlative basically paid for most of this stuff right wow. so the video side of the business it does like videos and video games right so we'll do games in retail and we'll do films and we'll do a lot of them and i took all the money he was making and pumped it straight back into invoke to make sure invoke had the legs to survive and get to where it is now where it now you know got the foundation it's growing i couldn't keep on doing that anymore because it was just like this is either going to work or it's not but I couldn't afford to keep on funding it anymore. And that became to the point where it was like, we need to go and get somebody else to pick up the tab to give us the money to grow, really. Right. So that was a year ago. And then everything changed. During that, on that journey, things change a lot. Um, when you go for investment as well, you know, they will give you the money when you debt when you need it the most. So they leverage the most out of you. For sure. Makes sense. But they, it was the it was a, it's the right time to grow because we found 
an area of the market which is bigger than the original area of the market we went into and that's really what we're using the money for i'll sort of explain that in a bit more so we started out we made the tool to mean that you didn't have to ship the product so when you go to an event for example people go to these events for biotech and they'll ship four products well if you use my tool you can ship every single product because it's all it's a digital companion of your device that's what invoke is at its core it is a digital twin of your product. And we looked at it from a marketing lens. We were like, this means that you can go to events with it. It means you can have it on your website. It means you can do these remote demos where you invite people in, but it was all marketing focused. And then over time, we've realized that actually, the because we're a SaaS model business, marketing sort of struggled to pay the bill every single year because marketing, I mean, you're, you're marketers as well, right? We've got some marketers in the room. They want to pay for something once and then have it. So they pay for a video or pay for a pamphlet, right? They don't want to keep on paying for that every year. And with Invoke, you have to pay every year to keep it on. It means that you stay ahead of technology. Like it's on us to stay ahead of the curve. You don't have to. But their marketing budgets, they might spend, you know, a lot of money on a product one year and the next year they shift focus. So they don't have the same level of budget. We found that Invoke's probably brightest future is to go into training and maintenance because training and maintenance cost these businesses quite a lot of money and invoke by being a digital companion by being an exact replica of the tool but virtually means that you can suddenly do all your training virtually and you can start to do low level maintenance virtually on the invoke platform so we've sort of shifted the business a little bit from pure sales and marketing to like post sales now a little bit more and that's largely what the money's been for and will possibly be going for more because we've seen this huge market in training and maintenance way, yeah way bigger than the sales and uh, enablement bit as well that's mega yeah it's huge it's just, it's like what was if you make a virtual version of your device there was something i, I read this book so i used to be petrified of flying right this is going to sound tenuous, so go with me. And uh, I read this book. Somebody said, the way to get over your fear of flying isn't to get drunk on every plane that you go on, because that's what I was doing. I was so terrified. That that's I not would... the answer. That's apparently not the answer. Somebody told me to listen to this book called Cockpit Confidential, right? And it's just this, and it's an audio book, and you just sit and listen to it, and it's about everything that's happening on a plane, and it helps you get over your fear of it. But he said something really interesting, which was uh, the only reason you get on a plane is because the pilot that you trust knows what they're doing has spent X amount of thousands of hours in a simulator. And so they play a video game of flying and that's why you trust them, right? They then are allowed, once they've done X amount of hours in a video game, allowed to fly a real plane. But every year they have to go back and redo the video game bit. They have to do the simulator. So I was like, why don't we do that for everything? Because for medical products and biotech products, they are quite complicated machines and training people on them is quite a labor intensive process. Mm. And the second you're training someone on a real machine, that real machine isn't making you any money anymore mm. because you're training somebody. I was like, well, why can't we just take that, that methodology behind pilots in, in fly sims and bring it over to like biotech and medical and go, here's a virtual version, learn on that. So you still make money on the real one and you, you're not going to break the real one. You're going to break the virtual one. So that's where the, the business opportunities come up. So I'm like, there is an unmet need there. 
because nobody wants to take the machine down to train people. So do it virtually. That's, that's a fantastic idea. When, when, when was the libel moment and how do you feel? It was the first event I went to, uh, AACC in Chicago. It was, which is a, I can't remember what any of the acronyms stand for, right? So don't quiz me on it. Um, that was a, it's a life sciences event in, yeah, in Chicago. I was walking around and I was seeing that, yeah, Invoke really works for marketing. It's great. But what do we do post sales? Is there a need for it? And as I talk to people, what the biggest challenge that they were saying was we haven't got enough people who understand how the machine works. So even if you can train somebody, finding somebody, you've got a machine there that's just for training. You still need somebody to train. Like you still need a person there, a teacher there to train people. So it's like, my tool fixes that because you can do like 130 people at once around one virtual version of the machine, right? So that was the light bulb moment. I spoke to a few other people about it and um, we've got this marketing company we worked with for quite a while in uh, California. And he was thinking the same thing because he used to run the um, training and maintenance team at Thermo Fisher. And he was like, it is a big issue in the industry. It costs a lot of money to train and to fix machines. So if you can have a version where people at least pre-train and stuff like that, like a way to get people just familiar with a device will save these companies millions. And that's why I was like, yeah, that's, that's what Invoke does. So it was a great moment, but then it was like, oh crap, that's a lot of work to do to get it. Because when we're, when we're making a digital companion for marketing, you're only doing what marketing wants to say about the machine. When you do it for training and maintenance, you're doing every single thing the machine can do. They're two very different things, right? Hence why I need some more money. More money and, well, the thing is we could probably do it on the money that we've got as well. It's not that we need more. It's, it's more that to scale it the way we want to scale it, we probably should be looking for more. I was convinced we would never go for any more money because you're not. You're like, we'll take this money and I'll be a millionaire. It's like, no, well, it doesn't really work that way. If we want the platform to scale, into the areas that we know we need to get into because we're, we're just in biotech at the moment medical dwarfs biotech right biotech's already like a 40 billion industry and medical becomes like this trillion dollar industry right if we want to go into that space we need to know what we've got if is right and works so we'll use biotech to move into that space but there's only so much a team of 15 or 16 people can do if you want to if you want to do it better and bigger you need we need more money to grow it yeah and this thing about scaling, right, with the business, if you scale, like scaling is a, is a bit of a myth in that what doesn't scale is support. So if we do this platform that is going to train and maintain products, we'll need to have a bigger support team behind it. And support doesn't necessarily scale the same way. Why? Because you always need people, right? And people are very bad at scaling, right? Yeah. So like if you, if you build a SaaS, like a tech product, and it's, it's SaaS modeled and that's got loads of scalability in it because I, all you do is you put more people into it. When you put more people into it, you need to make sure that you're supporting those people more. So by adding, you add 100 customers to your SaaS platform, right? You have to make sure that your training on that SaaS platform is up to scratch, right? But that also has to be constantly reviewed and changed based on the user experience. That user experience becomes this, this, this beast which has to, constantly evolve because you've put 100 people on and they wanted this now you're gonna put a thousand people on and they want this and those those paths always change so it's not 
as scalable, support isn't as scalable as people think, and it always sort of comes a bit of a cropper. So we're trying to make something, if we had a bit more money, we can come up with a plan that, that scales it a bit better. That's a rambly nonsense answer, I do apologize. No, great answer, great answer. How, um, how did you find going, getting that first bit of money? How really was hard. Yeah. Like really hard. Why? Because <laughs> it just goes on forever, right? Raising money is a full-time job. So you better be prepared to not have a holiday because you've got to carry on doing your full-time job whilst doing another full-time job, which is raising money. So we were pretty fortunate. I had this um, chance encounter. Like most of my life feels like it's a series of chance encounters, but that's what life is anyway, right? I complained to our solicitor who we pay on a retainer for all this because we've got so many licensing agreements in place with these customers. I complained to them that they weren't, um, they weren't, they weren't paying us enough attention. And in response, they invited me to a, a lunch and learn with like taking your business across the pond, it was called. And in that room was somebody from Mercer Investment Group, a guy called Will. And during the lunch and learn of the conversation stuff, he said, this is what they do. They run the Northern Powerhouse Investment Fund. We go and meet him and you get the usual thing when you go and meet investors. He's like, oh, look, just so you know, we, if it's a no, we're still here to support. We're still interested. And I'm like, no, that's not true. But they say the answer is fine. And then you sit down and you start sharing the platform and the clients that we've got and where we've, the vision is. And suddenly I was like, you have something here. You've already made it. We just need to take it to market better. Because my go-to-market strategy was do you want a virtual demo. That was it, right? You needed something a bit more concrete. But that happened last October. And then we put the a bigger, I mean, the, in fact, actually the investment deck started six months before that. So it's 18 months, six months to get your investment deck up to scratch and 12 months of pitching to people. But even when somebody says they're interested, there's still then due diligence. There's financial due diligence, tech due diligence. Your background, everything you've ever done, you know, is pulled up. Um, make sure your social media accounts don't have just a bunch of shots of you smashed off your face, right? Make sure you, like, you project the version of the person you want to be that someone might invest in because it will dominate your whole life for 12 months when you start that process. So it's tough. It's really tough. I don't like... I think people watch Silicon Valley and believe that people are getting given term sheets. Like, it's not that easy. It's really tough. Is it, especially now, right? I, I guess you, you don't have anything to compare it to beforehand, do you really? Not really. I've got, oh, I know people, I know, I've know i known lots of business owners who've gone through it, right? And um, none of them, none of them ever said it was easy. And they've gone through it for years. I think there's a perception that as an economy shrinks, then... Uh, investment becomes more difficult but that's not actually true because people still have money and they have to put it somewhere no matter how much the economy shrinks people will still always need to put money somewhere because the only way money makes money is if you put it somewhere but getting money off people can possibly be a little bit more difficult but it's never been easy no one's ever like like i said this version of it which is in tv shows and stuff where people just get given this money and it's that easy but it, it's really not people with money and money to invest, don't give it away easily. And they never have done. It's more risk averse, perhaps. There might be a deeper due diligence process, maybe. Um, they might have a different portfolio. You, They might at one point have a certain type of portfolio they want to go for, and then they look at the market and go, that portfolio is no longer relevant, so they move somewhere else. So it might actually be 
at one point your industry was easier to get money. The industry we're in, the biotech space, is constricted at the moment. So, you know, an investor could look at that and go, well, your product, as good as it is, it's in an industry that's constricting, that's out of my control. So they might look at that and go, well, that's too risky. And they might look at something else like social media and go, well, that's not constricted at the moment, so let's put our money into platforms that support that. And that's out of your control. But you just have your focus and go, if you're doing something, if you're doing something in the position that I was in where we've built something and had customers and had a platform that could grow if it was supported, that put us in a slightly better position. But still, you know, 12 months of brutal, you know, constantly being asked for your pipeline where you're like, why am I giving this person my, my pipeline when they've not invested in my company? Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's just really quite challenging and quite stressful. There's this weird bit when I, I went for a drink with a guy from, so we worked with Santander quite a bit, this guy called Paul, who was like the head of internal comms, right? And he said, we should go for a drink when you, when you, when you finish. And I was like, yeah, okay, we've not managed to, to sync up yet to go for a drink, but he said to me, he'd done a week before I met him for like lunch to talk about things. His other friend had just finished his investment round, then they'd gone for a celebratory drink. And it'd been like, he thought the guy would turn up and he'd be like bouncing off the walls. So it was like someone had cut the string from the back of him like a puppet. Cause he was like, he was just so beat. He'd got this thing he wanted, but it had beaten him to a bloody pulp to get it. So it's not always the most like relieving thing when you get the money. You all celebrate it and put it on LinkedIn like you've won the world, right? But there is a part of you that's like, that was effing hard. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I'm, I've spoken, again, I've spoken to people who've gone through it and it's, that's a really good analogy. It's like someone's cut the strings off a puppet, just, ugh. You feel as well, like there are times that <laughs> you're just like, we can't keep on going down this path. We're going to need to look at other options. Yeah. Because it does, you know, it, it takes your focus away from your business to a degree. And that's probably the biggest challenge is like, we got a million, right? And you look at it and go, could I have made a million in the year it took to get that million? That, and you, you, you need to get those questions out of your head sometimes because actually what we've got now isn't necessarily always about the money, it's about the support that comes with it. You know, we have a backer that believes in us as pushing us. You know, we have a board now. We've never had a board. It was just Stuart and his weird ideas, right? Now we've got no Stuart and his business that needs to go in this direction. And that, in the same way, having a child gave me focus. Suddenly having a board has given me focus in the same way. Brilliant. Love that. Did you, did you go VC or PE? VC. VC. Any particular reason? If you ask one set, like if you ask a VC what it's like with... Uh, private equity, they'll go, like, oh, private equity is awful. And it's vice versa, right? Private equity, we would have been more investors, right? We had a VC that took the whole round. So Mercy is just saying, we'll just give you the money. And they actually went from, we went from asking for half a million to being given a million. So, because they were like, will you take more money? Because they looked at our business and went, you need more than half a million. Right? You, you think, you always think, I'll give away less. I'll take less money. And they're like, absolutely not. If you're going to do this, here's a bigger pot of money. Go for it. Go further. Go and push the thing faster. And the VC supports us with that. If we had loads of smaller private equity things, I don't think we'd necessarily get the same level of support. We would probably be in more control. But like we were looking for the support as, as much as the money as well. I think. Yeah. Yeah. They they got us to take a chairman on. 
they got us to take a financial director on and we have board meetings now every month which i've never had before um which is just like every single time it's just like oh you're not making enough money <laughs> it's like well, i bloody know that because i see i see it but you know not everything goes to plan um but we've got a board there that believes in us and supports us so some some months you miss your target some months you exceed your target right and with a private equity firm they would possibly not be as involved in that they would be they just want return and return and return whereas a vc is a bit more longer term thinking that might just be my random opinion on it it might not be true you know someone might like i said someone will say private equity is the best and someone will say vc is the best you're doing a dance with the devil regardless so just whichever one you feel comfortable with do that one yeah good advice now you've had had the investment and whatever you've got planned in for the next month or two. Um, what's the plan over the next 12, 18 months? Have you got anything that we should be keeping an eye on? It's the training and maintenance stuff. Yeah. It really is. Like um, from a tech perspective, the point of coming and working with Invo, the point of putting your products in Invo is that we keep you ahead of the curve. So when Apple's glasses launch in January, uh, their AR glasses, we will make sure that Invoke works on it. So if you want to use that in your in your lab or whatever, we'll make sure that Invoke works because that's that's on us. We make sure Invoke works everywhere. That's a constant grind, right? Making sure that we're ahead of the curve of those things. Training and maintenance stuff is where we're going to be looking. That's where we're going to be pushing more. It's, it's to give you a, the sort of rough sort of um, reason, the reason we're going for it. If we stuck with marketing, we would have to put a lot more products in. Right, to make the targets. With training and maintenance stuff, we don't have to put as many products in to hit the targets. We have a pattern in Evoke, right? We have a bunch of patterns in the, on the tech. And it's a methodology of the way Evoke works. So because I came from a film background, it was really important to me that when people talk about their products, it's not just done the same way it would be if you read a pamphlet. It has to tell a story. And we created these things called story blocks. Right? So a story block can be pulled from into a storyline. And that's the way, like the brain of Invoke is this thing called the Storyblock Library. It's this library of content of everything you want to say about a product. So for marketing, it's maybe like 30 story blocks that they want to pull from to craft the marketing storyline. At the moment, most of the products that are in Invoke do that. They have just a marketing focus. There's 30 story blocks in the Storyblock Library. And you can put them in any order you want, right? And you can make as many storylines as you want. If you're going to a certain event and want to talk about it in this way, or you're going to do a more detailed remote demo, you talk about it in a different way. 30 story blocks in the Storyblock library. With training and maintenance, if you put a product in, you're looking at closer to four to 500 story blocks. And so that's the big change for us in the next 12 months. We're building the systems that mean that we can, instead of doing 30, we can do 400 to 500 in a lot more of an efficient way. And it means that when customers put a product in they can project onto it a little bit further rather than just this is just marketing they'll look at it and go like no this is everything pre-sales and everything post-sales and that's what i think a platform like my platform has to do if you put the thing in it has to fill around to the whole bit of the business so that's where we're really focusing because we just know that training is an issue maintenance is an issue and marketing at times can you know if if, a, if an economy is shrinking marketing will get a budget cut but they'll never really cut the training in the maintenance budget that's why we're focused we're like that's in the next 12 months that's what you're going to be focused on it's going to be like you'll see it from our our comms and stuff like that it's all going to be about how 
games have taught us how to teach people how to use things. And that's what a lot of our folks are going to be trying to get that game logic into training and maintenance the same way we did with marketing. Games are a couple of things that were really groundbreaking for when we started working in Vogue. Localization was the first thing, right? So games worked out that you could, if you're playing Fortnite in one country and you're playing Fortnite in another country, both people can play and have the game represented in their own language. Right? And that was what a lot of our customers like, we want to break into the Japanese market. We want to grow more into Africa. And I'm like, do the thing in Invoke. And then when you go more global, it's easy for us to change the language. It's easier for us to do it than it is for any other industry because video games solved it ages ago. And then the other thing they did was games need you to learn how to play the game, right? So I put a new game in front of you and you go, I've never heard of this thing before. So it has to have this thing in front that takes you on a path to get you engaged in some way. So we're taking that methodology and putting it into biotech instruments and medical instruments to go like, there is a way to get people to learn complex systems and it isn't teach them everything and then expect them to do it. It's teach them a bit, get them to do a bit, teach them a bit, get them to do it. Cause that's the way video games teach people. And that's what we're trying to bring over a more sort of modern way of thinking about learning and training. But again, it always comes from what the video games industry teaches us. And I'll call it something else. So people don't think I'm making a video game, but fundamentally, the way to teach complex systems has already been done over here in the video game industry. We will just steal from it. So uh, last few questions, I promise, and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll let you go. I've already got a sales meeting later on. I don't want to do it anyway. Okay. So. <laughs> For anyone who has an idea, uh, you know, and wants to turn into reality, into a, into a business, have you got any advice for them? Yeah, lots, but we'll, we sort of sum it up in something easy, is that you have to iterate quickly, right? So... And if an, if an idea doesn't come to fruition, you need to use everything you learn from it to put it into the next thing, but you have to do that quite quick to talk about video games again. That is the, the core fundamental of some of the biggest video games people will ever play, right? Microsoft had just bought, um, who did they just buy? Activision for the biggest deal of all time, right? So it's a $77 billion deal to buy, and it's the biggest acquisition of all time. This industry... People take it seriously. When they take it seriously, they learn a lot. But one of the fundamentals of the way you make a game, right? Take that into how you make things. Like, because you think something works, understand that it might not work, and you change quickly and take on board the feedback to iterate it faster and make something else quicker. So, for example, in Invoke, we learned that one of the main bits of the, the platform, the remote demo tool, the bit where you can invite everyone in to look at the same tool is the least used bit of the platform. So we went, okay, we need to put more focus and attention on the other areas, the bit that works on the website, the, the storyline making tool. And we need to pull from this bit and drag it over and not be trying to push it. We need to go, we need to learn from it and go, there's a reason people don't use that, but let's steal from it and bring it over to the other bits. When you make things, when you sit there and try and make something, sometimes it won't work and it'll fail at it and you'll get pissed off from the whole thing. It's quicker to bin it off, start something over here again and drag everything over that was good. And you end up with a better tool by doing that. That was the way I learned to do things anyway. It's like, be comfortable binning ideas off and taking what you needed from it for the thing you end up that works. Again, a really janky way of explaining it, but it's iterate quickly is like the best way to describe it. 
be comfortable at failing because you'll be more comfortable at calculating the risk. So if you make something and you go, this is the greatest idea in the world, be comfortable that it might not be, but you're on the path to making the greatest thing in the world by letting it die. Is that poetic and not rambling enough for it, you? Yes, <laughs> super poetic, yeah. yeah. I love the letting it die, but actually, yeah. No, but that, that does make complete sense, and I think it's something that I know I struggle, I struggle with, and I, but I was speaking to someone the other day who, who like, found started and sold like four businesses or something but he, but then he was like but i have actually no, he said he sold four businesses but i've actually founded probably like six seven yeah yeah and he's like they just they just dies they do they yeah. do man that's the, it's like like super the, like the video and the video games bit exists still to pump cash into invoke while i guess the legs to breathe and it's a great business right and it really is at some point the idea is invoke becomes so big it just engulfs all the super stuff as well but it you know, it might never happen by going for marketing and then going for training and maintenance after it's like at some point, you know, we'll just give the marketing bits away for free because like because of the real benefit of the tools over here, it's not over here. So let's stop focusing our attention to what these guys need because they, they're going to change their mind and things are going to change, but these guys won't. So you have to be comfortable just shifting. You, like, like I said, calculating the risk, you're going like, if I move this thing over in this direction, is that going to make any sense to anybody? Like when you when you make a video game, um, the reason it's called Iterate Quickly is like, build something, see if it works, and if it doesn't, then be comfortable to bid it off. And that happens on video games all the time. Like there's a huge, very famous game called Portal that started as something completely different before it ended up being the game it is, and the game it is now is massive, but they were comfortable at binning off the things that they originally wanted. So like this is what works and then they go out and take it to an audience and the audience dictate what works and doesn't and they shift it and bend it in a different direction that's largely what invoke has done for us we started pushing it down this marketing path like twisting it more towards a, a training and maintenance tool and making it now for that audience rather than making it solely for the, the marketing audience because that's what the the market has dictated it's not us going like no 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 it's a marketing tool it's like no one gives a shit. Those guys need it. Make sure it goes in that direction. Brilliant. Okay. But last question. Um, always like to end on this. Imagine it's your last day on earth. And uh, apart from being on this podcast, spending time with your family, whatever it may be, what would you be up to? What would you be doing? What do you think? What would I do? The last day on earth. I, um, I'd eat a lot of food. Okay. Nice. I think I would spend an awful lot of the day eating. And even though it is the last day on earth, um and you probably want to maximize the amount of time you get out of it there is a there is a beautiful feeling that you have waking up after a nap yeah so you want to experience that one more time right so and eat enough food that will put me to sleep for an hour so that nice feeling where you wake up in it after a nap you spend your last day napping napping it's bad isn't it like a dog right? <laughs> i don't know there's other like where would i want to be in the world is a different thing i'd want to be in different places right but you want to bounce around rome is like me and my wife lived in rome for a year i'd want to be there just eating in rome because there's nothing that makes you happier than just eating food in a beautiful place um but as i get older the more food i eat the more it just induces a nap anyway so that if i'm going to spend my last day enjoying food and drink and conversations with people is going to have to have a nap at some point. Yeah. So if you want me to maximize the day so I can get like a full, as much as 24 hours out of it, you're going to have to take two hours off for snoozing. Well, brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. It, it sounds like 
this is the start of something incredibly exciting and um uh, and yeah it's been just it's been really fun talking to you cool cheers man thanks for having me on and that's it for this week's episode thanks so much for listening and i really hope you enjoyed it anything we talked about will be linked in the show notes and if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and we'll catch you on the next one Thank you.